Our reading of Scripture comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 4-1. Hear now the word of God. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, receiving the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. Good morning again. So, uh... This is a very important passage of Scripture, and the reason that you're hearing this passage of Scripture is because River Community Church's commitment to expository preaching. Expository preaching says that we go through a book verse by verse by verse. We allow God, the author, to set the agenda for what we need to hear and what is important for us each week. I can imagine even myself choosing some other paragraph of Scripture to focus on on any given week. But because we want to hear from the Lord, we are committed to hearing every word that He has for us. Let us pray. Father, we come to you today with a passage of Scripture that is countercultural in many ways and that we may have many defenses against hearing it clearly. But, Father, it is your word, and so we pray that you would give us ears to hear. Father, that as uh, your instrument to proclaim this word, that you would make me concise and clear, that you would make your point, which is gracious and good for us, the emphasis. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so as we are going to look at this passage... um, You are in the middle of a series, uh, many of you know by now, called Jesus is Enough. We've been going through Colossians, passage by passage. And uh, the the idea of Jesus is Enough is important. I always want to emphasize that at the top of every sermon. That's the point of Colossians, that with Jesus you have everything that you need to be saved and to live a life that pleases God. Chapters 1 and 2 spent time where Paul emphasized that Jesus is enough. And and we remember in chapter 1 the the huge uh, hymn to Christ that declared that he is the Lord above everything. Well, as we get into chapter 3 and as we've been moving through paragraph by paragraph, we've been learning what does it mean to live out that lordship in our lives. As we've gone through chapter 3, we've seen that living out the good news of Jesus means putting on the mind of Christ. It means going to war to rid ourselves of every evidence of sin. It means renewing 
ourselves into the image of Christ, pursuing sanctification. It means treating everything in our life with thanksgiving and gratitude. This week, Paul is continuing that theme of what it means to live out the good news of Jesus Christ, what it means to confess Christ as Lord by calling believers to something very simple but countercultural, to live out in our daily relationships the goodness of Christ's lordship. The goodness of Christ's lordship. That is the emphasis in this paragraph. Paul calls attention to Christ the Lord seven times in these uh, few verses. And that is, that is what makes this passage countercultural and has always made it countercultural. Because Paul is saying that we live in relationship in this world always under the lordship of Christ. We may read this passage and we may get a, a, a bit nervous or anxious about some of the imperatives, but what we should see as Paul wrote this is that he doesn't give privileges, he gives great responsibilities to everybody in this passage. Responsibilities that call for us to uniquely and together show the lordship of Christ. Why is this countercultural? Because lordship has never been popular. Lordship is an offensive doctrine to the human prideful heart. It goes all the way back to Eden. What was the temptation that the serpent gave to Adam and Eve? Was that you could just be like God. Give up being under God. Be like God and take this forbidden fruit and actualize yourself. Well, that, that spirit that, that, that was birthed in Eve, that was against authority, that was suspicious of lordship, continues on in every generation. It's the reason that I don't have to wonder if I'm speaking to a congregation that has at one time or another, or is right now, resentful of their boss. Or that have struggled submitting to their parents or have committed backtalk to their mom or their dad, or marriages that have had tension about what, what we are to do and what we're not to do. I, I expect that we have in our room real struggles with the doctrine of authority. That is why every single one of us aspires to being the boss. And if we can't be the boss, then we'll be self-employed. Because at least we can have it our way, right? The other side of the coin is that we've had much experience with authority being abused. Our resentments have been hard-earned under employers who have taken advantage of us. Over moms and dads who have uh, been overbearing, who have been too strict perhaps. I'm not speaking to my kids, but the other kids. to husbands who have been harsh and unloving and unsympathetic. These things have made authority a noxious thing. 
And so that's why this passage is so important, because we all share in this. And the good news that Paul reveals to us in this passage is that the gospel points in an opposite, startling, fresh direction. He tells everybody, every single one of us, who we really are. Your servants of Christ. That is what every single one of us is. Authority and position are much less important once you recognize that every single one of us lives under Christ. And as we live under Christ, what we live for and what we do is to please Him and to love others. It is because this is countercultural and yet the, the essential fabric of living out the gospel that we recognize as Christians who live under authority as the scriptures call us to, we become incredible witnesses to the gospel. Paul has given us what, what we would uh, call a, a household code. And in this household code, he reveals that every relationship that we have in this world, whether it be in work or in family or in marriage, is to be submitted to the lordship of Christ. And so in all three of these relationships that we are involved in, our chief task as we look at this passage is to make sure that the world sees in our work, in our family, in our marriage, that Christ is Lord and that his lordship is good and beautiful. So as we go through this passage, I want us to to look at each of these relationships, these three everyday relationships that will testify to a watching world that we live under Christ's authority. Now, I'm actually going to go through the passage in reverse order from Paul. We're going to start with Uh, masters and bond servants, and then we're going to end with husbands and wives. And you may ask why, because I want to run out of time. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, not quite. Uh, (laughs) No, I believe that the very last verse is the key teaching verse that will help us structure everything that comes before it. And so as we move from the workplace to the family to the marriage, we're actually going to move up in, in closeness and in motivation in ways that will show the gospel, I believe, even more powerfully. Let us go to the first everyday relationship that testifies to a watching world that we live under Christ's authority. And that is this. We testify to Christ's authority at work. And we are going to see that we testify to Christ's authority at work, whether we are employers, by acting justly and fairly toward all, or whether we are employees, by serving excellently. Let me look at each one of those in turn. So we start with employers. As employers, we are to be acting justly and fairly towards all. Now, I already recognize that I have updated the language quite a bit from Paul because Paul is speaking of a slave-master relationship, to be quite blunt. And I need to address that issue because it can be a stumbling block for some. I want us to recognize that as we look at the Scriptures and how it deals with the existence of slavery and the relationship between slaves and masters, that we first of all do not come to this text 
with our own American history of American slavery. The slavery that was in practice in the first century was vastly different. It's not good slavery. Don't hear me say that. But it was not based on race. It was not necessarily a life sentence. You could make money and you could even buy yourself out of slavery in the first century. It's also important to recognize that, the slave, that, that, that slavery is something that Scripture never says uh, uh, you must be. It is not condo- condoned in Scripture. In fact, if you go back to uh, verse 11 in chapter 3, Paul says explicitly that in the gospel there is neither free nor slave. The gospel actually does away with that relationship in any earthly sense. Nonetheless, I believe that Paul is dealing with what is timeless, the relationship of, of, of boss or employer and worker. And I, I recognize that that's been smoothed out a little bit, but I do think we can look at this passage uh, profitably in that perspective as the workplace. And so as we look at the employers, Paul says in verse 4-1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, the reason that we are looking at this verse first is, as I indicated, this is what we call a, a household code. In the first century, uh, dad did not get up and leave and go to a different office. The whole idea of the, of the household was it was where you had your job, it's where you had your family, it's, it's where you had your marriage. Everything was under one roof. And so the household was the center of the family business. So when this passage goes and talks about uh, husbands and fathers and masters, it's talking about the same person. All three of those uh, hats are worn by one person in the first century. And so when we read chapter 4, verse 1, we recognize what Paul is saying to all of the, the positions of authority in the household, the husband, the father, the master, is this, you are under Christ's authority. The head of the house is a servant of Christ. Paul basically tells the master, you're a slave too, to the lordship of Christ. And so, be a good slave to your Lord, just as you expect those who work for you to do good work for you. The important thing then as we grasp that essential truth is that as employers, you give an account to Christ for how you run the office, for how you take care of your employees, for how you run your business. It is under the lordship of Christ. You do not go out to the office and go under your authority, you are under the Lord's authority, even in the office. And what Paul wants us to recognize is that when you are judged for the, the, the work that you did as an employer, as a boss, you're not primarily going to be judged for your profits. You're not going to primarily be judged for the growth that you brought to the company. You're not going to be... Uh, Uh, judged for the amount of advancement you accomplished in your own career in the office. No, you are going to be judged as a boss based on this, whether or not Christ was honored in your work 
and you used your job to love your neighbor, which is the people that you are over. How are we to do that? Paul says in two words what that means. We are to reflect him as being just and fair. That is what an employer is going to be judged by Christ as. Are you just and fair? You see, that is the lordship of Christ. When you go back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, you are told what kind of Lord uh, our Lord Jesus is. Verse 3 says, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees, by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Let that sink in. When you are an employer and you are a Christian, the number one thing that you are doing in the office is reflecting your Lord's rule, his character. What he wants done, and what he wants done in the office is that the office is run according to justice and fairness. Now when we say justice, justice means that we love Everybody in the office, we seek to make sure everybody is treated right in the office. We have love for all. We do right by all. We don't pick to say, this person can advance my career. This person will never get in the way of my career. And so I'm going to put my favors on this person and not on that person. It means that we always do what is right even if what is right may be costly or inconvenient. If you, if you were, for example, uh, ca- caused some grief to somebody who is a, a subordinate, by doing what is right, you would seek to fix what you did wrong and fair. Fair means that the office does not show any signs of, in, uh, of favoritism or discrimination. The office appears as as best as can be seen as truly impartial. That the boss, as the boss, we reward good work proportionately and we discipline as necessary. But never could it be said that we are picking and choosing who are our favorites and who gets to win based on who gets the perks. You see, with the employer, you are reflecting the justice and fairness of Christ's rule in heaven. And as you think about yourself as an employer, have you made authority beautiful? Or have you made authority repulsive to those who work for you? We all work under a master in heaven. Now, as we go to employees, employees, Paul exhorts, to serve excellently. And he spends the most words on employees as as anybody because, as we have said, the the identity of being a a slave to Christ is, is true for all of us. And so verses 22 to 25 are relevant to every single one of us as we seek to relate 
to Christ. Perhaps it's worth remembering uh, our series at the beginning of the year where we went through Genesis 1 through 3, and we looked at Eden. Eden, which is, is the picture of, of perfection. It's what we all long to get back to. It's what the, the Bible, in one sense or another, is, is preparing us for, a, a second Eden, an improved Eden. It's worth remembering that in Eden, there was work. God said, tend to the garden, work it and keep it. And so uh, it is typical for us to, to look at work as this, as this cursed thing <laughs> that we want to get away from. But Paul speaks to work here in these passages because work is a gift. And the amazing thing about the gospel is that it restores what work is supposed to be. We remember in Eden that the reason that work is good in Eden is because it was both meaningful and rewarding. We didn't do things that were not worthwhile or that were vain. Everything was meaningful because it was building the Garden of Eden. And everything was rewarded because it was under the good pleasure of God. So then look at what happens in the gospel when we uh, submit to the lordship of Christ. What happens to our work here under the new covenant? Verses 23 and 24 say this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You see that, that in the gospel, our work goes back to being meaningful and rewarding. Because no matter what work we do or where we do it or who we're working under, ultimately, we are working for Christ. We are serving Christ. Christ is watching over our work. It is Christ's delight and Christ's reward that really motivates us in our work. And those things don't go away. They're not contingent on whether your boss notices or doesn't notice or discriminates against you or favors you. The true evaluator of your work that makes it meaningful and rewarding is Christ. Every job, I, I think this is, this is so encouraging. Every job, I, whatever you're doing here, Whatever you go to work to do tomorrow, whatever task you do, whether it's in the home or in the office, every task done heartily, done from the heart, done out of a, out of a desire to do well for the Lord, receives his pleasure and receives inheritance. Everything, that the most obnoxious part of your job, if you work heartily at it, the Lord receives joy, and that joy spills over to you. So how do we do this? How do we serve excellently? excellently? Well, 20, verse 22, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Obey in everything, that, that's how. Why? Because in serving your boss, you are serving Christ. I want us to recognize as we think about employment that our hard work is meant to adorn the gospel. 
Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 say this, Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the heart of what's called the Protestant work ethic. Because doing a good job shows your adorning of the gospel. You are making the gospel more interesting, more uh, a, a, a wider audience to pay attention to it because your hard work is not creating a stain on the name Christian. Witness to his good lordship. Now let's move on to the next one. We testify to Christ's authority in the family. We're going to look at verses 20 and verses 21. We testify to Christ's authority in the family as children by obeying and as parents by developing them in the Lord. Now, as, as I said, as we move up these verses, we're, we're moving up in terms of the intimacy of relationship. There is a much closer relationship between child and parent than there is between employee and employer. And as we move into a closer relationship, these commands ought to be greater motivation because our desire in those relationships of love is to be fulfilling our duties, to be fulfilling what has been called upon us. And so as we look at children, the command to obey We should have greater motivation to obey because we recognize the connection between obedience and love in the family. Obedience and love is one way of describing the gospel. Look at John's first letter, the fifth chapter, verses 2 and 3. We're told these words by the Apostle John. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments, by this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You see what the Apostle John is saying there? He is saying that knowing God as Father, as being a child of God, and being obedient is is identical with saying, I love God. If you say, I love God, you obey God. Obedience and love in the relationship between father and child go hand in hand or hand in glove. And so uh, Paul here is, is, is playing on the same thing. Obey your parents out of the motivation of love, but not just the love for your parents. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, Something very amazing. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. This pleases the Lord. Children, do you, do you want to make Jesus happy? I mean, can you imagine, as a six, seven, eight, nine-year-old, you can make Jesus happy. You can fill him with delight. Right here is the words. Obey your parents. 
This pleases the Lord. What an amazing promise. You make Jesus happy simply by your obedience in the family. And more than that, your obedience is a, is a, is a sweet adorning of the gospel. You are walking in Jesus' footsteps in Luke chapter 2, the only passage that we uh, meet Jesus as, a, as an adolescent or as a child, we read these words, Luke 2.51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, speaking of his parents. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus, obeying his earthly parents, adorned his life and made his stature with men and with God increase. The same is true when Paul tells us children, obey your parents. You know, kids watch kids. I, I, I have kids at my house all of the time. And we think that maybe they don't have any influence at all. But, but kids, your friends that come over are watching you. And it says something humongous when you obey your parents' rules, even when your parents aren't around. You say something to your friends about the love and respect that you have for your mom and dad when you're obedient, when they have no uh, presence around you. And kids notice that. And you adorn the gospel through those sorts of things. I'm trying, parents. But kids also watch parents, don't they? I always remember going over to friends' houses, and I loved watching the family dynamics. You know, how did the dad play with the kids? How was the mom? All of these things you're watching, and you're seeing that there are other ways that these things can be. And so as we talk about parents, we recognize that we testify to Christ's authority in the family as parents by developing them in the Lord. Let me just ask as a preface to parents, can your kids see the lordship of Christ over you? Can your kids look up to you and say, I know that my dad and my mom are living in obedience to the Lord. Can they, can they see that? One of the ways that they will see that is sometimes you'll admit you were wrong. And you'll say to your kids in earnestness, I'm sorry. I lost my temper. I shouldn't have done that. These are ways that your children see that you yourself live under the Lordship of Christ. And that is something that they need to see as you seek them to develop into the Lord. But what is your goal when you parent? Is it for them to maximize their, their economic potential, for them to, to, to maximize their, their sports talents, to get a good job, to, to find a great spouse? Paul in verse 21 is telling us as parents we must be seeking to develop them in the Lord. 
We want our children to become adults that love to please the Lord. We want what we see in them as kids seeking to obey their parents to please the Lord, to be what they do with the rest of their life, to seek to please the Lord. As Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the most memorized verse in the Old Testament, every family in the Old Testament uh, had this verse memorized. Listen to it carefully. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Fathers, are you raising your children up to live lives that want to please the Lord? That's the goal for parenting. Parents, invest in your children's souls. I could, I could easily convince you to invest in their education or to invest in their sports seasons, but I beg you, invest in their souls because they are eternal and they are precious. Teach them and be careful as you parent them. Paul says, do not provoke them lest they become discouraged. Provoke could just as well be translated exasperate. And discourage means that you can parent in such a heavy-handed manner that they become broken-spirited and they are unable to flourish. Do your kids know you are proud of them? Do your kids know you are proud of them? Do you want to know one way you can say the whole gospel? In Mark chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus is baptized. And the Son of God comes up out of the water, and the clouds part, and a voice from heaven, the heavenly Father, booms out to his Son. And he says, this is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. The father shouts from the heavens his joy and pride in his boy. And in the gospel, you are made a child of God. And in the gospel, when God sees you, he sees you through Christ. Which means that God the father's word to each and every one of you is, I love you and I am so proud of you. Fathers, are you saying those words to your children? That they would not be exasperated, but that they would grow up loving the news that God is our Father. What a great gift to have a Father in heaven that's even greater than my Father on earth. What a great privilege it is to reflect God's love. Let us testify to the beauty of the Father's love. Third, 
the third everyday relationship that testifies to a watching world that we live under Christ's authority is that we testify to Christ's authority in marriage. And again, we see words to wives and words to husbands. As wives, we testify to Christ's authority in marriage by submitting willingly. And as husbands, by acting with loving kindness. Again, we have moved into a closer level of intimacy. The closest relationship that is described in this household code is between husbands and wives. And that means that in our marriages, there is an even greater testimony to what the love of Christ and the lordship of Christ can look like to the world. Because we are showing the closest possible relationship that the gospel says we have. We are the bride of Christ, and he is the husband. Now, we must recognize that the word used here is submit, not obey. Submit is not equivalent to obey. In fact, the verb tense is different. It is in what we call the middle tense, which means that it is extra uh, dependent upon the volition of the person. When we talk about submission in these words, we are talking about a submission that comes from within, a submission that comes from your want to. It's not an order from above or an order from outside. It is the calling of your own spirit to say, I want to submit. Now, it's hard to want to submit to a stinky husband, and we'll get to that. But what we're talking about now is it's not about the husband. It's about the fact that it's fitting in the Lord. The want to comes from you wanting to live out the lordship of Christ. And submission reflects the team relationship, not not a disequal relationship. The gospel sees husbands and wives as equal in worth. There's, there's no view in the gospel that men are superior to women. That is not a teaching of Scripture. What it teaches is that in a marriage, in a healthy, thriving, gospel-witnessing marriage, there are roles, equal importance, equal value. Just like in a football team, you need someone playing the role of quarterback and somebody playing the role of wide receiver if you're going to win the game. Or in dancing, somebody has to lead and somebody has to follow if the dance is going to be beautiful at all. And so when the words submit are there, it is speaking to a call to the role. Why would you want to? Because our submission is to Christ, and it is to be fitting to the Lord. Now, when we talk about fitting, it means it has to be consistent with Christ's lordship. Husbands can't ask and command or do anything that is aberrant to Scripture. Your, your, your submission is to Christ first. But why? Why, why would we want to do this? Because most of all, Christ is witness to in this relationship. The Apostle Peter said these words in his first letter. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, i.e. are not believers, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. 
Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. He says two amazing things there. That that the wife who practices the, the command to be submissive to the Lord can win her husband without a word, makes the gospel beautiful, and could save an imperishable soul for eternity. And second, even as so much of of home life can be outside of the view and not get any recognition, God says, I see it. And it is precious in my sight. It is to say that every single thing that we do biblically to be a good wife or biblically to be a good husband is not going to be lost. It will be rewarded in God's sight. Now, husbands, husbands are called to act under the lordship of Christ with loving kindness. Paul calls husbands to love our wives. Not to be harsh with them. Not to be embittered to them. That means to be kind. The entire relationship of a husband to a wife is to show love upon love and kindness upon kindness. So that, that, that the only thing that your wife could say in, the, in the, the gossip of women is, I don't know what you're talking about. My husband is loving and kind all the time. That ought to be the report that we give because that's what we are. In this command to love your wives is the invitation to reflect Christ's love for the church. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul expands on what he says here in Colossians. He says, husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way Husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. You see, this is the the most beautiful picture of the gospel. That Christ loved his bride with such loving kindness that he laid down his life that she might be redeemed and made pure and beautiful and without blemish. He was so kind that he has endeavored to, to cover over every spot and blemish, that he might make his wife the most beautiful thing in heaven. And that is the loving kindness that the husband is called to imitate in his own marriage. Husbands, love your wives. How? By loving Christ. 
It's not throwing stacks of money in a bigger house. It's loving Christ is the way a husband loves his wife. You love Christ and you submit your headship to him so that everything that you do shines and shares the loving kindness of the Savior into your marriage. Show her that she is beloved by loving her as Christ loves the church. And I'll tell you this, if you aim for that, I don't think your wife will have as much trouble with submitting to it. But that is our goal. Do you see, as we looked at these three relationships, that our daily lives testify to Christ's lordship as good and beautiful? We do it as employers by acting justly and fairly. We do it as employees by serving excellently, as children by obeying, as parents by developing our children in the Lord, as wives by submitting willingly, as husbands by acting with loving kindness. We do all of that because we live our lives daily and consciously under the Lordship of Christ. It really boils down to one question. Have you made him Lord of your life? Is Christ Lord over your work, over your family, over your marriage? Christ is the Lord who has loved you at the cost of his life and who will sanctify you and make you holy. Call upon the name of the Lord. Amen.